Welcome to How I Did It, where coders philanthropy and social capital team find out how successful leaders do what they do in the world of philanthropy and social leadership. My guest today is David Panzera. Ten years ago, David was working in real estate in New York when his grandmother, Leona Helmsley, passed away. Overnight, David became executive of her estate, a responsibility that included establishing a charitable trust. What makes this story extraordinary is that today, 10 years on, the Helmsley Charitable Trust is valued at over 5.5 billion US dollars, and this despite the fact it has already distributed over 2 billion US dollars in support of people living with diabetes. This value puts the Helmsley Charitable Trust in the same bracket as foundations established by the Buffetts, the Rockefellers and the Bloombergs. In this episode, David talks about how he took on this enormous responsibility, how he runs the trust as a business, and the value of taking calculated risks with philanthropic dollars. While the amounts David deals with are uncommonly large, the principles he talks about have much wider application. I hope you enjoy this conversation. So welcome, David. Welcome to Australia and welcome to CODA. How are you? Good. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Great to have you here. Um, You are a founding trustee of the Helmsley Charitable Trust. Now, that's not a trust that many people in Australia would know, but it's got a a really, really interesting story uh, behind it. What can you tell us about it? Sure. So um, my grandmother, who was Leona Helmsley, started the trust, and most of the funding fell into the trust upon her death, and I was named one of the trustees of what's now a five and a half billion dollar entity. Five months prior to that, my oldest daughter was diagnosed with type one diabetes. Not such a subtle message as to what I should be doing with my life. So I quit my career and I was in commercial real estate prior to that in New York City and transitioned into the world of medical research. And you transitioned into it, I'll talk about that in a minute, but um, did you, you presumably didn't think that you'd ever be in this position. No, <laughs> no, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I knew how to care for a child with type one, but I knew absolutely nothing about how to get a drug, a device, or a therapy to market. But also I would imagine how to, I mean, just how to um, establish and, and run uh, a foundation like this. I mean, the size is, um, is significant. Even 10 years ago when it started, um, you've grown it considerably, but it was still a huge amount of money. Uh, and as you say, you were working in a different industry. Um, so how did you actually, how did you acquire those skills and gather around you the, the necessary expertise to actually lead a foundation like this? Sure, so I actually started out, um, and, and I, I view philanthropy similar to a business. I think philanthropy should be run like a business. So you start with your goal. So our goal is we want to deliver a drug, a device, or a therapy to market. And in order to make that happen, you have to understand the landscape and you have to understand what your role is within the landscape and how you can impact that. In type 1 diabetes, at least in the U.S., it's a relatively small market. Most of the large companies play in the space only when they have to. Given a choice, they'll play in the type 2 market. So a lot of what I did was we spent 18 months doing diligence before we ever wrote a check because we had to understand the landscape and we had to understand what our role would be within the ecosystem. Once we understood that, and and by the way, it's an ongoing learning experience. I've been at this for 10 years. I learn every day. 
Yeah. Um, if we, you know, I always say if we knew what the answer was, we'd be done. It's unfortunately not that simple. Um, so I would say w what I did was I applied the skill set that I had, which was business, to the nonprofit because that's the only thing that I understood. The, the nonprofit philanthropy world to me seems to be a little bit of a, um, you know, it's, it's just a different opportunity. I, I would argue philanthropists have an obligation to think differently, to do the diligence, and not just start with who you're writing a check to, but what you're trying to solve. So you did that, and that took 18 months in terms of due diligence. Do you think, do you think some philanthropists or people who set up trusts and foundations uh, are too quick to rush in and lay, lay down their, their big bets? I mean, is it really, really important in your view to get that due diligence done and put a lot of emphasis on it before you, you make big grants? From my point of view, 100%. Yeah. You know, look, if, if, you're, if what philanthropists want to do is write a check and put their name on a building, they don't have and to do a whole do, lot of right? diligence some to do, do that. Yeah. And, and that's certainly, um, it's certainly needed. Mm. Uh, but I would think that if these generally philanthropists are very successful business people, and what we would need for them is to apply that business acumen to their philanthropy. Yeah. If, if people take nothing away from this talk take this away, which is do the same amount of diligence you did to make your money to give mm. your money away. Mm. And I've seen many, many instances where people just write a check to somebody in a white coat because they tell them what they want to hear. If curing a disease were easy, we'd be done. Mm. And it's, it's, it's just not that simple. It's fascinating, isn't it, how we talked about just before we, we started the podcast, how when... Um, people who have followed certain rules and practices in life and business that have made them very successful turn their mind to philanthropy they often they often stop doing the same things that made them successful yes. stop applying the same criteria uh, and, and give in a very different way but um, you've obviously got a very very disciplined approach that you've developed over a period of time have you got a team around you that helps you do that or is it really done by the trustees Oh no, I'm I'm part of a team of on the type one diabetes team. We're a team of twelve, including me. So I've got uh, I think six PhDs, three or four MPH, and an engineer. Um, we're we're looking at having the expertise on staff. Yeah. And when we don't have the expertise, we go rent it via consultants. So so that's something you, again you've done deliberately is say yeah. if we're gonna have an impact or, or we're gonna distribute money in pursuit of a cause then we, we really need to make sure we've got people around us with the right skills and, and expertise, right? For sure, after yeah. understanding the ecosystem. Yeah. So you have to understand what's your role within the ecosystem. So for us, you know, there's the public charities in the space, there's mm. the government funding, and then there's philanthropic dollars. And mm. philanthropic dollars, in my mind, has an obligation to think differently mm. than the public charities. Mm. The public charities are saddled with fundraising. And it forces them to be short-sighted. It's not a knock on the charities themselves. Mm. It's a knock on the model. Mm. This kind of sets the philanthropic dollar uh, in the context of what I would call risk capital, right? So um, as opposed to a very conservative approach, you are looking in almost an entrepreneurial way but with a lot of discipline around using the dollars that you have um, as risk capital, backing things that you think will work, um, but thinking outside the box, thinking differently because of the, of the place that you occupy in the ecosystem. Is that right? And do you think we should see more of that in philanthropy? 
So I look at it as because, and I think I've kind of said a little bit of this, because we're not a public charity and we don't, we're not saddled with the fundraising obligation, philanthropy has an obligation in my mind to think differently. They should be much further out on the rich risk curve yeah. and do the things that others won't. So mm. I, I view our approach as we're more than a checkbook. We bring expertise to the table yeah. via our staff. We are, we're not funders. We're partners with our grantees. Mm. And it's very, very different than just cutting a check and saying, go do your thing. That's a very different relationship, isn't it? We are very actively involved with all of our grantees, which is part of the reason why I'm here. Yeah. Um, we fund a bunch of projects here in Australia, and we want to be active participants. We want to understand what the problems are mm. so that you can pivot, fail fast, and move on in some cases, yeah. or readjust accordingly. And do you see, if, if, you, if, you, if you pivot and move on, do you see what you've done as failure, or do you see that that's an essential step along the way to being as effective as you can be? So, David, I think the whole concept of failure is what paralyzes people. Okay. <laughs> Particularly in this space? Yes. Yeah. Listen, we have never, ever reversed a chronic disease. It hasn't happened in our life, despite there are well over 700 news reports that we've cured type 1 diabetes in mice or otherwise. Mm. It has never translated to people. Mm. If it were easy, we'd be done. Mm. You're going to fail 90% of your time. And if you're not failing 90% of your time, you're not taking enough risk. Right. To my way of thinking, we should be embracing failure to hopefully get you an answer of yes or no, pivot, change direction. Yeah. But we should not fear failure. Yeah. If, if you're feeling, fearing failure, at least in the medical research space, you're, you're in the wrong business. I'm probably talking to the wrong man here. You reason you'll understand when I finish what I'm saying. But... Um, one of the beliefs I have is it's along the lines of what you've said, which is that the philanthropy dollar can and should be thinking about going places where, for example, the government dollar either can't, won't, or shouldn't go, mm-hmm. right? Um, you've, ob- you've obviously um, picked up that trend, but I, I, we actually don't see, I think, too much of that here in Australia. We have quite a conservative view. So I think what you're saying there is really interesting. Um, in terms of making... Let's, let's just use the word success as opposed to failure. In terms of making a success of what you do ultimately with um, what you have at your disposal, how do you think about the impact? Because I know impact's really important to you at the Trust, but mm-hmm. how do you think about it? How do you measure it? So let me just back up to answer one thing. So mm. I don't... Failure's not a failure if you learn something from it. Mm. So I, I would argue that even if the project fails you're going to glean something out of it that says, okay, we tried X, X doesn't work, let's pivot to Y and Z. So I don't view failure as failure. Failure to me is, you know, you throw your money at some guy in a white coat because he's promised you X, Y, and Z, and you've done no diligence, and lo and behold, the guy in a white coat fails. That's failure. Um, So to answer your other question, I think it's it's more about... um, how you measure impact. So we don't really torture ourselves mm. with measuring impact that much. And, and, and I say that um, a little flippantly, but I measure impact by, you know, being able to move things towards the market. So have we, you know, especially in the device space where we play a lot of, or in the drug space, 
have we kind of ticked the box to move something towards commercialization, you know, along the clinical pathway? The philanthropic dollars and the way I look at it when you allude to government funding mm. and then there's the public charities and then there's philanthropic capital, mm. you know, I, I would argue that the you know, the government type funding is pretty low risk mm. and basic research. Yep. The public charities are generally the next step further out, mm. um, a little more risk, but again, saddled with having to fundraise and perpetuate mm. a story. Philanthropy has, in my opinion, I keep saying this, the obligation mm. to think bigger, go go high risk. Yeah. And it's really the role that the VCs used to play in the U.S. 10 or 15 years ago in medical mm. research. But especially in type 1 diabetes, nobody's touching mm. type 1 from a VC standpoint until you're well into the clinic. It's like, on the one hand, you've got the obligation to do it. On the other hand, you've got the freedom to do it. That's part of Absolutely. how you can, you can do that, right? Yeah. You actually have the freedom... Um, to, to give in that way. Um, David, conscious of time, um, you've got some interesting views um, uh, around cure, which you mentioned before, cure versus care when it comes to diabetes. Yeah. What can you tell us about that? So look, as a parent of two children with type 1 diabetes, I'd cut my right arm off for a cure. But as I said before, we have never cured a chronic disease. And to be clear, cure to me is you wash your hands and you walk away as though you never had the disease. Mm. Cure means different things to different people. That's what it means to me. So I truly believe in beginning to develop tools to ease the burden of managing the disease. Type 1 is a 24-7 grind. You never get a break from it. We want to develop tools using technology to make that easier to deal with. And we still fund cure research. Uh, I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. Um, which is why about three and a half years ago we pivoted towards primary prevention. Yeah. If you look at history, it has shown that we've prevented diseases, but we haven't really reversed too many. And I'd argue a lot of the things you hear about cancer and other cures are remission and something else comes and gets them before they relapse. So if you pivot three years ago, I'm guessing that an organization of um, your size, your scale... Um, that's gonna people are gonna notice that, and people are gonna have a view. We hope so. Um, so, did you encounter much resistance or opposition when you did pivot? Because people will have different philosophies and views. So, uh, it, question is twofold: Did you encounter you know opposition to that, um, and and how did you respond? I don't know. Look, there are certain folks in the community that think that the approach of it's it's hard to argue with primary prevention. It's logical. I, I don't have a medical background. I don't have a medical research, but just be logical for a moment and look at the diseases that we vaccinate against and now have basically eradicated via prevention. The fact that it hasn't happened in chronic diseases ever, I mean, look, as I said before, I hope we can get there, but if not, we should be taking the long-term approach. And to be very clear, the, the primary prevention approach is a 20 to 30-year process. So you have to be in this for the long term. And I would love for nothing more than for somebody to find the cure and we can close up shop and go do something else. Yeah. So I, I think over the course of the conversation, um, you've given us a really interesting insight into how you think about risk. One of the things that's interesting for me uh, comes up with our clients regularly is the idea 
that when you think you're not taking risks, you actually maybe they're the biggest risks you take. So the very conservative approach or the approach that puts a lot of faith in a promise that you're given by someone in the white coat that might not be able to be backed mm -hmm. up, those might be big risks, in fact. Um, so taking what you might see as bigger risks may actually, in the end, not really be the biggest risk of all. The biggest risk of all might be over-conservatism or over-reliance on somebody else's story. Is that, they're my words, but... No, I, I agree with you. I mean, look, risk is really about perspective at the end of the day. As I said, if we knew exactly what to do, we wouldn't we take done. any risk. We'd yeah. all just go all in and solve the problem. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not that simple. But, you know, as, as I've said a few times here, I truly believe philanthropy has an obligation to do the same amount of diligence that they did to mm -hmm. make their money, to put their money to work. Yeah. And it, it, it's a business at the end of the day. And if you don't have that perspective, you've got the wrong one. Whether, you, you know, whether you're given, as you've done, over one point, $1.6 billion, or you're given um, $1.60 here in Australia, really the principle still applies, 100%. doesn't it? Otherwise, yeah. you really are giving your money away. Yeah. Why would you want to do that? Um, well, I think we'll, we'll finish with just one final question, David. Um, just want to return back to um, how you went from your former life to how you learned to lead an organization like this and manage the responsibilities you've got. Can you just um, can you just kind of expand on that a little bit in terms of providing advice from the experience you've had going on that journey to other people mm -hmm. that might be um, put in a similar situation, someone who sets up their own charitable foundation or who inherits a responsibility? Sure. So for me, it was pretty simple in that my daughter was diagnosed five months before. I made a very simple promise to my six-year-old daughter at the time, and that was that I'd help you in any way that I can. I then am a trustee of what's now a $5.5 billion trust. I understood that I had to go and do something full-time. Um, so I transitioned by learning. Um, I hired somebody who was already in the field, um, this gentleman by the name of Dana Ball, who was running Lee Iacocca's foundation. I, hopefully you guys have heard of Lee Cook on this side of the Pacific. Um, successful businessman. So I, I met with Lee Cook and Dana very early on in, in my process. So I got, I was very fortunate to hire somebody as employee number two at the Charitable Trust who had been doing it for seven years already. Yeah. So he kind of knew where the bodies were buried and knew where, you know, the, the uh, understood a lot of the landscape. So that probably saved me a couple years worth mm. of learning. So for me, I spent, as I mentioned, 18 months traveling around, living out of a suitcase to learn. Mm. Fear is a really good motivator to get you to go and learn. And, you know, I was, I was scared. And um, once I understood the role that we could play and the impact that we could have, it, it became clear that we had to build a program and a team to help us do it. So, you know, for, for me it was... Not so much learning the nonprofit, but learning where we fit within the ecosystem that we're trying to impact. And, and I would argue one of the biggest things that we had to do and continue to do constantly is engage with industry. Because yeah. they're the last part of the equation. They're going to do the manufacturing and distribution. Mm -hmm. And what we do a lot of is understand their pipeline and more importantly, what's falling off their pipeline due to a lack of funding. Mm. Because of the economics with type one, um, there are a lot of times where we can invest in some things 
to pave the way for industry to come where they wouldn't otherwise go unless we paved the way. And yeah. we've done that pretty successfully on a couple of occasions. And the other thing you've said there, I, I've heard in the answer, is um, uh, getting the right people around you, particularly in health. Sure. I think that there are other areas where it's important, but I think it's, in my experience, been particularly relevant in health to get the right kind of expertise around you because it's um, there's an awful lot of technical, in-depth knowledge that you need in order to, in order to make good decisions, right? So getting, sure. getting the right people around you sounds like a very important thing. Without a doubt. But listen, if if there are if there are groups who, you know, most philanthropists are not going to build out a team of 12 yeah. people to help them do it, but that's when you start doing some diligence on the public charities out there. Quite frankly, we've had many people approach us and in some cases, fund side by side with them. Mm. We don't really take money in, but we yeah. have co-funded yep. or funded projects side by side. There are there are credible vehicles to mm. play with if mm. you don't want to go and set up your own team. Yeah, and, and again, if you don't have the resources that you've got at your disposal, I think it's it, I think you'll hopefully agree, it's just as relevant to go out and talk to people and get people around you, um, like-minded people, people that are passionate about the the particular cause, whether it's yeah. medical or otherwise, um, they're, they're still things people can do if they're interested in giving well. 100% true. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, sounds like you're giving really well, and um, I really appreciate your time um, whilst you're here in Australia to come in and, and have this chat. Um, good luck with everything you, you're doing. I hope it bears uh, a lot of fruit, and um, enjoy the rest of your time in Australia. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of How I Did It. For more from Coda, visit codacapital.com or email philanthropy at codacapital.com.